Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. There have been many games, movies, and commercials about drugs and the unfortunate effects it has on those addicted. None of those anti-drug advertisements, such as Michael Jordan and McDonald's partner Drug PSA, the game Wally Bear and the No Gang, or the film Curious Alice, ever realistically presented the effects of drugs. That's why today, we're going to look at Requiem for a Dream, a film made in the year 2000 portraying the harsh reality for those addicted. This critically acclaimed film about drug use and addiction shows how even the most unsuspecting people in the most unsuspecting places can become addicted to drugs. The film does this through creative sound design, costume design, set design, and character development. My name is Brianna Dempsey. I'm a junior studying neurology and psychology at UNCA, and join me as we dive into the depressing reality of Requiem for a Dream. When first going into this movie, I didn't really know what to expect. Okay, well, that's not entirely true. I knew to expect a film about the dangers of drugs and that iconic Requiem for a Dream song used in various soundtracks and montages. You know the one. The one that kind of sounds like... Oh, that sounded terrible. I'm so sorry. (laughs) But as I sat back and turned on this movie, I was completely unaware of the emotional ride I just began. I also want to provide a spoiler warning for those that plan to watch the film, and a trigger warning for anyone sensitive to gruesome imagery, drug usage, or sexual themes. Listener discretion is advised, as this movie is rated R. Requiem for a Dream centers around four people, Harry, Sarah, Miriam, and Tyrone. Each one of our characters, either willingly or unwittingly, starts doing drugs. Each person goes into a downward spiral towards their own demise. Let me explain everyone's relationship to one another. Harry is Sarah's son. Tyrone is Harry's best friend, as well as his drug partner throughout the movie. Mirian is Harry's girlfriend. Mirian, Harry, and Tyrone are all addicted to heroin, which is presented nearly at the beginning of the film. Harry and Tyrone prefer injecting their heroin, as Mirian prefers sniffing hers. Sarah is completely different from the other three characters, as she gets addicted to prescription amphetamines. Now that is out of the way, it's important to establish everyone's motive in the movie. Harry and Miriam love each other and would love money to open up their own clothing store. Tyrone wants the money so he can be successful and make his mother proud. Sarah was invited on a television show and wants to lose weight as well as see her son Harry become a success. After viewing the film, I can understand why a viewer would interpret the film as a realistic approach to anti-drug propaganda. Quite frankly, the movie ends horrifically. Harry loses his arm to an infected heroin wound. Sarah has to undergo strenuous and almost unorthodox procedures to get over her addiction. Tyrone goes to jail for his association with drugs. And Miriam is forced to sell her body to rich men to supply her habit and make ends meet. The depressing and realistic end of this film would, quite frankly, make a great PSA. However, I think that's a surface-level interpretation. I think this film is trying to make a point about who and where someone could get involved with drugs. In other words, the filmmaker is trying to show through sound design, costuming, set selection, and character development that anyone, anywhere, no matter how unsuspecting, can become an addict. 
I've compiled a numbered list for you all of the reasons that support the filmmaker's message. Number one, the setting choice. Requiem for a Dream takes place in Coney Island. Coney Island is a neighborhood in Brooklyn, New York that is famous for its dreamlike park. According to the official website for the NYC Department of Parks and Recreation, Coney Island is packed with entertainment and a beautiful beach that spans for miles. With this description, it isn't a wonder why it would be a hot spot for tourists and NYC residents alike. It is also not a wonder as to why Coney Island would be used in a plethora of movies, books, and everything in between. This incredible neighborhood has commonly been used to represent paradise and happiness, such as in the 70s classic The Warriors, when the main gang of the same name finally makes it back to Coney Island to escape and ultimately resolve the murder of which they were wrongly accused. Or in the 1950s family favorite Little Fugitive, where Joey ran away to Coney Island and spent the entire day in an arcade and activity-filled paradise. Now, if we look at Requiem for a Dream, Coney Island does not serve as this paradise or happy place for any of her characters. The blissful area is the setting for the sad and twisted reality each one of our characters is forced to face, and this is no accident. This is the filmmaker expressing that even in the most unsuspecting places, drug addiction can run rampant. In the same place that Harry and Miriam lovingly spend time near the beaches and boardwalk, he and his best friend risk their lives for a drug shipment. The setting choice also serves to support our central theme of deception. In this historically happy place, in a famous city, is where our characters lose themselves and fall farther away from their dreams and deeper into their addiction. The city itself serves as a facade, a stunning, family-friendly place that people would not associate with dangerous drug addicts. Unfortunately, the city serves as the epicenter for everything drug-related in this movie. Coney Island and the stigma of it hides the grim reality for many people in Requiem for a Dream. Number 2. The Costume and Sound Design The film starts in the summer. In the summer, Harry and Tyrone dive headfirst into the drug-selling business. Miriam supports Harry going into the dangerous industry, and Sarah gets invited to go on a television show. We will mainly focus on Sarah, as she is the character this point applies to the most. Excited by the possibility of going on her favorite game show, she decides to revitalize herself. Her friends motivate and support her, helping her dye her hair, fill out forms, and attempting to help her zip her dress. Sarah, unfortunately, cannot fit in her red dress, and turns to dieting. Her friend informs her of diet pills on the market, so she visits her physician to get more information on them. During this, Harry and Tyrone's business is booming. Harry decides, because he's been a bit of a jerk to his mom, that he will get her a new present. However, when he visits her, he notices something that is very awry, and it worries him. This is where our theme of deception comes back in. Harry not only lies to his mother about his work, but we also get a glimpse of the possible deception between Sarah and her doctor. About 30 minutes in, as Harry talks to his suspiciously energetic mother, he keeps hearing a sound. This film utilizes emphasized diegetic sound, so we, the audience, also hear this sound. Before I continue, let me explain the difference between diegetic and non-diegetic sound, as I will be using both of these terms a lot. Diegetic sound refers to sound that we can hear in the movie, but our characters can hear as well, such as a radio playing. Non-diegetic sound refers to the sounds that are outside of the film universe that only the viewers can hear, 
such as a pop song playing in the background of that typical nerd-turns-into-pretty-girl makeover. Now, back to the film. The sound that we hear, it's an unnerving, almost grating sound, as if teeth are being mashed together. Harry is looking around, and he finally understands what that sound is. It's the sound of his mother grating her teeth. This is where our first piece of evidence toward the filmmaker's main goal comes in, showing that anyone, even the most unsuspecting, can begin an addiction to drugs. Bruxism, or tooth grinding, is a common sign of amphetamine abuse. I think it's essential to focus on how the filmmaker presents her tooth grinding through diegetic sound. We, the viewers, hear this rhythmic sound but cannot determine what it is. Harry looks around, confused and hyper-focused, but we aren't really sure why yet, due to his habit of having hallucinations and false scenarios previously in the film. Then, as the camera pans to Sarah's teeth, and the grating sound is louder, as she's clearly grinding her teeth together, it is then that Harry not only discovers where that sound is coming from, but we, the viewers, know that that grinding sound was something actually happening, and that the characters in the movie could hear it too. Applying this film element allowed the viewers to take in this unnerving sound and grow worried with Harry. When Harry spots this, he immediately pairs it with Sarah's energy and recognizes it as a symptom of amphetamine abuse. He grows frantic. Because of his experience in the drug world, he knows when someone is on amphetamines, or as Harry explains it, speed. They grind their teeth together to an almost excessive amount. Harry's observation isn't far off, as amphetamine abusers do tend to grind their teeth. Actually, the symptom is so well known that studies have been published in the National Library of Medicine about helping amphetamine addicts manage their bruxism. The use of diegetic sound effectively immerses the viewer and allows them to notice a sign of Sarah's amphetamine addiction. The sound design creatively pushed the scene forward and highlighted the beginning stages of an addiction and the main goal of the movie. But that's not the only thing to take note of in this scene. The costume design also helps aid us in knowing Sarah's beginning stages of addiction. As Sarah explains to a very worried Harry that she feels fantastic, she's eager to show him how she lost 25 pounds. Now, okay, it's important to take in her entire look when she's explaining how happy she is. She's visibly thinner, her hair is a vibrant shade of red, and her outfit is neat, but the two ribbons that tie together around her torso are loose. Her state is symbolic of how someone would feel when first beginning an addiction to amphetamines. According to the American Addiction Center's organization, amphetamines provide a powerful high and raises the heart rate and blood pressure. This means that a person on amphetamines will feel confident, enthusiastic, happy, and vivacious. Now, if we look back at how Sarah looks in this scene, particularly her hair, we begin to see why the filmmaker chose such a vibrant shade of red. Red is usually a passionate, warm color, and adding vibrancy reflects all of the aforementioned feelings one would feel when they are on amphetamines. The costume's design was deliberate, and subtle symbolism towards the reason why Sarah later crumbles. Now, in the next scene we want to look at, it utilizes diegetic sound and costume design in an even more intense way than we saw before. About an hour and three minutes into the movie, Sarah sits down and begins to watch her favorite show, Juice. As the show starts and everyone is introduced, including Sarah's ideal self, her imagined self teleports from the television screen into Sarah's living room. The figure begins to laugh at her and her surroundings before beckoning the host to join her. Once the host arrives in the living room, they both begin to laugh at Sarah, 
Soon enough, the entire audience begins to point and laugh at Sarah through the television screen. Her envisioned self then begins to chant, Feed me, Sarah, filling the entire room with nightmarish chants. Suddenly, the refrigerator bursts to life, rushing towards Sarah. Sarah shrieks in agony, and as she flees, it is revealed that the television was displaying a colorful static screen the entire time. The entire scenario I just described was happening purely in her head. The scene uses sound in a creative way, and almost explosive way, that really captures the audience. It makes the entire audience feel as if they're on this crazy, drug-induced trip. When you're watching the scene, you can't help but feel panicked. The scene starts normally, as it usually does when she begins to watch the Juice show, and ramps up into a nightmarish experience. The manic laughter and chanting in the scene emphasize how terrifying a drug trip can be. The audio in the scene highlights some of the signs that someone is addicted to amphetamines, particularly how victims experience visual, auditory, or tactile hallucinations and paranoia. Due to the whole scenario happening in her mind, it is safe to say this scene expressed the auditory and visual hallucinations one will experience when on amphetamines. The fridge springing to life, paired with the chanting growing louder, also represents Sarah's paranoia. From the beginning of the film, the fridge was her enemy of sorts because she wanted to lose weight. Now it's physically her enemy in her mind. The scene communicates the point beautifully, how even the most unsuspecting people can get hooked on drugs and experience these terrible symptoms. In the scene, it is also important to look at the costume design. Sarah is wearing her red dress, which looks dingy and scuffed and her hair is a stale orange color rather than the vibrant one we saw when she was first on the drugs. When we look at Sarah's imagined self from the television screen, however, she is wearing a fancier, neater red dress that matches vibrant red hair and lipstick. Her imagined self looks much younger, much like how Sarah would have first looked in the dress. This difference highlights the effect a drug could have on someone. Sarah began as a vibrant woman on a health journey, but as time passed, she has become a deranged shell of herself. According to the American Addiction Center's organization, some of the symptoms of amphetamine abuse are the inability to keep up with responsibilities and rapid weight loss. These symptoms are reflected in the way she looks. Her hair represents her inability to keep up with herself and her responsibilities. Her now ill-fitting red dress represents her unhealthy weight loss. This scene expertly communicates through costume design how even a person you would never expect, like a well-dressed, sweet older woman, can succumb to the horrific effects of drug addiction. The last scene we have to look at, to tie together the importance of sound and costume design, happens to be the last in the movie, which is about an hour and 34 minutes in. This scene fully encaptures every character's downfall in the most depressing and realistic way possible. This film shows everyone curled up in a fetal position when they are at rock bottom. Harry is curled up in his hospital bed, his arm clearly missing. Tyrone is curled up in a hot prison, remembering his mother's embrace. Murian is curled up on her couch, recovering from her feverish night of regrettably selling her body. And Sarah is curled up, her own fantasy of being on television, replaying through her mind. To fully see the film's main goal, we need to again focus on Sarah. This scene utilizes both diegetic and non-diegetic sound to communicate Sarah's fantasy world and her real world. 
We hear her ideal world playing through her head, with her being introduced and introducing a successful version of Harry. We hear this, yet we also hear the iconic Requiem for a Dream song playing as background music, serving as non-diegetic sound. This song is intense and directly contrasts with the happy voice of the television host. The sound clearly reflects her deluded world that was created through the abuse of amphetamines versus the pitiful and sickly position she is now in because of her addiction. It is also important to take note of the costume design here as well. All of her red hair has been cut to show unruly gray hair. She is wearing a hospital gown and has severely chapped lips. She overall looks rough, and if we compare her different forms throughout the film up until this point, it's pretty easy to see that she was never someone people would expect to get caught up in drugs. This costume observation, paired with the intense yet faint non-diegetic sound and bittersweet diegetic sound, it is clear that the message of this film is that anyone anywhere, no matter how unsuspecting, can become addicted to a drug. Number three, character development. We have to look at Sarah's character development in the last three scenes. Sarah starts off as an energetic, happy woman who feels as if a breath of life has been given to her. She does not listen to Harry and continues taking the pills, thinking they are helping her. Slowly but surely, however, they are deteriorating her mental state. Before the Feed Me Sarah scene, she actually decides to go to the doctor. This is where we see our theme of deception again. Sarah expresses what has been happening to the doctor. Instead of taking her symptoms seriously and taking her off of the medication, the doctor prescribes her a stronger version of the drug, effectively making her habit worse. The doctor deceives her into thinking that the diet pills are helping her and that she is just getting used to it. When the doctor knows full well that her symptoms are not a normal occurrence that should be ignored. If her son Harry can recognize early on of his mother's symptoms, I find it incredibly hard to believe that the doctor could not determine what was wrong. It is unfortunate that the doctor was clearly deceiving Sarah in the scene and supplying her with more drugs to keep her coming back for more, much like how an illegal drug dealer retains his clients, except worse. After this scene, we see her in an almost unrecognizable state when we go into the movie's final scene. Her hair is unkempt and she looks terrible. She looks exactly like what a deranged drug addict would look like. Actually, directly before this scene, People on the subway expressed that she looked like a wacko on drugs. This evolution is clearly showing how a completely innocent, wholesome woman with hopes and dreams for her and her son can turn into a completely unrecognizable drug addict. Sarah's evolution can arguably show how prescribed medications can be just as addictive as illegal ones and can lead to the same miserable outcome. Now that we have fully covered how sound design, costume design, set design, and character development all converge to support the filmmaker's main point of Requiem for a Dream, I think it's important to talk more about the drug Sarah comes to. Let's talk about amphetamines. Amphetamines aren't all bad, by any means. Many drugs for ADHD, narcolepsy, and antidepressants are made with strands from amphetamines. Many people can benefit from amphetamine-based drugs, and they are still prescribed today. However, this movie focuses on the abuse and misuse of the drug. The drug was first developed in the 1800s in Germany, but wasn't extensively used for medical conditions until 1929. In the 1930s, the drug was used to treat everything from nasal congestions, hangovers, and even weight loss. This is where we notice our parallel with our film. 
The original book that this movie was based on was published in 1978. The first amphetamine epidemic, as noted by Nicholas Rasmussen, was between 1929 and 1971. It is no longer unbelievable that Sarah would be prescribed such drugs in the first place. What is apparent, however, is that her doctor was negligent and deceptive, clearly knowing the danger signs of when a patient is misusing amphetamines. This film can be interpreted as commentary on social and pharmaceutical companies, expressing that prescribed drugs, and the ones who prescribe them, can be deceptive and abused, just like the illegal drugs available on the street. Overall, I believe Requiem for a Dream is a fantastic film. It utilizes creative sound and costume design, as well as a juxtaposed set to enhance the movie. It does what no other movie in the 2000s or late 90s ever tried to do, and won multiple awards for it. If you haven't already seen this movie, I highly recommend it. The film is not for the faint of heart, but it is remarkable. I am Brianna Dempsey, and thank you for joining me. But before you go, all of my sources can be accessed separately below the podcast. Be sure to check them out, as they have a lot of information on many of the points I brought up in this discussion. Thank you, and have a fantastic day. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time!